Hello, and welcome to the How Life Works podcast, the podcast that helps introductory biology students better understand some of the toughest topics in the course. These podcasts are written and delivered by the authors of Biology How Life Works and are sponsored by Macmillan Learning. Learn more at macmillanlearning.com. Hi, my name is Jim Morris, and I'm here with Andy Knoll. We are both authors of the introductory biology textbook, How Life Works. In addition, Andy was a member of a NASA team that used robots to study the environmental history of Mars. Was Mars once a habitable planet? Now, at first, it might seem that the Earth and Mars are worlds apart, which of course they are, but it turns out that the search for life on Mars has a lot of relevance to some basic concepts in introductory biology. I recently had the chance to sit down with Andy and ask him some questions about his research and its connection to what you are likely learning right now in your intro bio class. So Andy, I understand that you were part of a team that explored Mars. What drew you to Mars in the first place? Well, when NASA designed the rover's Spirit and Opportunity, it really had in mind investigations of ancient sedimentary rocks on Mars, using their physical and chemical characteristics to try and learn something about Mars's environmental history. Now, it turns out that's precisely what I've done on Earth for the last several decades. It has to be said that the instruments on Spirit and Opportunity were not designed to look for evidence of life per se. Rather, they were designed to give us insights into ancient environments on Mars, allowing us to ask questions about habitability. Oh, that's interesting. So what were you specifically looking for on Mars? Well, the major thing we wanted to understand was the history of water. Was there once liquid water on Mars? If so, what were its, was its distribution? How long did it last? Water turns out to be a very special molecule with regard to habitability. If you look at a water molecule, you have an oxygen, and then you have two hydrogens that sit asymmetrically in association with that to make something that looks a little bit like a Mickey Mouse Club hat. Because of that structure, water has some unusual properties. For example, at temperatures where most other small molecules are gases, water's a liquid. Water also is a great solvent. So if you look in natural waters on Earth, they have carbon dioxide, oxygen, nitrogen gas dissolved in them. They have lots of ions from bicarbonate to ammonia, sulfate ions. Which is to say that water provides this remarkable medium in which the kinds of chemical reactions that we believe gave rise to, Earth, to life and certainly the kinds of metabolic reactions that allow life to be sustained are easily carried out in water. There are very few other molecules for which that's true. I see. Um, so I, I get that water is really important for life. So so did you find water, either current water or past water? Well, it turns out we've known for a long time that there is H2O on Mars. Like the Earth, Mars has ice caps at its poles, and those are made primarily of water ice. There's also a fair amount of permafrost at higher latitudes on Mars. So the question is really, can you find evidence for liquid water, the medium of life? And what we found, and this was consistent with earlier orbital observations, is that deep in its past history, 
Mars was warmer and wetter than it is now. Uh, we knew from the earliest satellite images of Mars that there are ancient river systems that still have left an imprint on, on the surface. And when we were able to look at Mars up close and personal with these rovers, what we actually found is that there's a lot of physical evidence that water transported sedimentary particles, and there's a lot of chemical evidence for chemical interactions between water and minerals. So what we learned in a nutshell was that, you know, more than three billion years ago, water, Mars was at least episodically relatively warm and wet which is important for thinking about life. I get it. Okay, so you're saying that there was evidence of water in the past, and today there's frozen water, there's ice. And, and where you find water, you might find life. So then what about life? How would you know it if you actually found it? I understand there are even certain criteria that bear your name. You know, we ask this question every day when we study the history of life on Earth. As most people know that if you look at relatively young rocks on our own planet, they contain fossils, that is the remains of once living organisms in the, in the uh, form of skeletons, of seashells, of leaves. But it turns out that most of the history of life on Earth is microbial history. And we've learned over the last few decades that even in very old rocks on Earth, we find evidence of microfossils, of chemical signatures of life, and certain kinds of structures that reflect interactions between microbial communities and, and physical processes. So using that experience, we can look for similar features on ancient rocks on Mars. Now there is something that's been called the null criterion which states that we can accept some physical or chemical feature in ancient rocks, whether they're from Earth, Mars, or somewhere else. We can accept it as biological only if we can reject the alternate hypothesis that these could form by physical processes alone. Let me just give you one example, and that is amino acids. If we found amino acids on Mars, would we be confident that life once existed on that planet? Now, as most students know, amino acids are made by every organism on Earth. They are the building blocks of proteins. But we also know that amino acids that formed by non-biological processes can be found in certain classes of meteorites that come from the outer solar system. And any high school student can do an experiment in which you take mixtures of simple gases run a spark discharge through them, and actually make amino acids in the lab. So finding an amino acid by itself would not pass the null criterion, because while it's consistent with the presence of life, it's not diagnostic for life. Now, on the other hand, if we found cholesterol on Mars, and could dismiss the possibility that the cholesterol got there with the spaceship, then I think we're talking about something much more exciting. Hmm, that's fascinating. Now, now, we're talking a lot about the search for life on Mars, and I think you kind of answered this question, but just to be clear about it, 
what so what exactly does the search for life on Mars have to do with the question of then how life originated back here on Earth? Because I know that's a topic that a lot of students are studying and trying to understand. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And, and in a way, it reflects the way we've traditionally thought about science. That is, people would tend to think that geology and the Earth are on one side of a fence and organisms and biology are on the other side of the fence. But we now know that life itself is a planetary phenomenon. Life was born of planetary processes. It has been sustained on Earth for four billion years by planetary processes. And through time, organisms have become major planetary forces in their own right. So in that regard, we think of the origin of life in terms of the makeup and, and structures on a planet, and we think of the sustaining of life in terms of planetary processes that sustain habitable environments. I see. Now, we've been talking a lot about life, but we haven't actually defined it. And I know that life is hard to define or actually like to pin down a definition. So does, does your work, does the search for life on Mars or how it originated on Earth, does it help to give you a definition of what life is? Well, I think we can actually describe life and we do talk about this in, in how life works, that all organisms that we know about, every one of which resides on Earth, have several features in common. They have methods of dealing with information, basically nucleic acids. Uh, they have membranes that bound the cell and separate it from the environment. They have processes that help them to maintain relatively constant conditions within the cell, what we call homeostasis. And they have metabolism. Cells gain materials and energy from, from their environment. It is likely that if we found evidence for life somewhere else, whether Mars or another place, that those features would characterize life elsewhere um, as well. Now, there is one interesting definition of life that was offered by uh, a very good biochemist and molecular biologist named Gerald Joyce in California. And Jerry suggested that life should be defined as a self-sustaining system capable of Darwinian evolution. And, and I like that because it puts evolution right at the center of everything we think about life. You know, there are quartz crystals that can grow and can change, but you know, a quartz crystal that formed four billion years ago will never be anything other than a quartz crystal, whereas nascent organisms that formed on the early Earth have given rise to E. coli, to redwoods, to turtles, and to us. So evolution really lies at the center of thinking about life. I really like those, those two ways to think about how to describe life. I mean, your first one really emphasized life or a cell as a system. What does a system need to operate? But your second one, of course, drew attention to evolution, one of the sort of central principles of biology and of how life works. So let's, let's stay here on Earth then, since this is where we know life is. So what would, first look, look, what would first life look like on this planet? Would we even recognize it today, or has it changed too much? Well, that's a good question. I, I think everyone who has thought about this problem would agree that the earliest living systems were much simpler than 
even the, the simplest bacteria we see today. And it might be useful to think about the transition from non-living to living as being more of a corridor than a door. And there are intermediates that might be very difficult for an observer to identify unequivocally as life. You know, we might actually see something change through time if we could, could watch it. Um, but eventually, we would get to something that has the properties that we mentioned a minute ago. And at that point, I think most people would be happy to say, yes, we now have something that is living and evolving on this planet. Now, I want to pick up on something you said earlier. I like it and hadn't thought about it this way. You said life is a planetary phenomenon. So do you think that life was inevitable given the chemistry of early Earth or just simply a lucky accident? Well, the honest answer is we don't know. And the reason that it's hard to make conclusions about that kind of question is that we have exactly one, one instance of life that we know about in the universe I will say that when I was a student years ago, there was this view that life originated because over very long intervals of time, inherently uh, improbable reactions occurred. But now I think most people who think about this problem are more inclined to believe that where the chemistry and physical setting of a planet is correct, life is likely to evolve. In fact, I remember a, a famous uh, pioneer in origin of life studies, Stanley Miller, was at a meeting years ago that I attended, and somebody asked Stanley, you know, how long did it take for life to originate? And Stanley thought for a minute, and then he said, well, I think a decade is too short, and maybe a century is too short, but if you can't do it in a million years, you can't do it. Now, we don't know whether that's true, but we do know that on our planet, the oldest rocks that we can look at and ask questions about life already tell us that life was part of the makeup of Earth. So whatever its probability is, it originated early in our planet's history. So we're talking a lot about how the Earth, or the planet, the chemistry sort of set the stage for life. I'm kind of curious about the other way around. Once life took hold, did it, or how did it shape Earth? That's a very good question, and maybe the best example of how life sh shapes the Earth is to think about oxygen. You and I would not be here were it not for the concentrations of oxygen gas in the atmosphere. Yet we know from geological studies of the early Earth that for probably its first two billion years of existence, the Earth had little or no oxygen gas in the atmosphere and surface oceans. Further, we know that there's only really one process that can generate oxygen in the amounts that were needed to oxygenate the atmosphere, and that turns out to be photosynthesis. So in a way, cyanobacteria, the bacteria that first evolved the capacity to use water as a source of electrons for photosynthesis and give off oxygen gas as a byproduct, they really shaped the Earth. And to be sure, 
there's another set of processes that are shaping the earth today, and that is the activities of industrial humans. So life is an important set of planetary forces, and we are among the most important. Yes, you bring up a really important point. Now, I've also heard you talk about the importance of bacteria and archaea to life on this planet today. Can you say a bit more about this topic? Well, yes. You know, when we look around and look at the diversity of life around us, just because we are large, we tend to notice other large things and think a lot about uh, plants and animals. But, you know, animals form only a very, very small part of the entire mass of organisms on this planet. Uh, there are probably 50 times as much bacteria and archaea as there are animals. They're everywhere. They're in soils. They're in water. Uh, there are probably more bacterial cells in your body than there are gym cells. Uh, so they are ubiquitous. They do things that other or you know more uh, derived organisms don't do. So if you want to see how the carbon cycle works, particularly where there's no oxygen environments, you need bacteria and archaea. You need bacteria and archaea to cycle nitrogen. You need bacteria and archaea to cycle sulfur. Uh, in fact, I would say that for functioning ecosystems on Earth, you need archaea and bacteria. Protozoans, algae, animals, and plants are optional. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it. So you're, you're basically saying that Bacteria and archaea are important not just because they're so numerous, but because they drive these important uh, elemental cyclings that are really critical for life. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we live in their world, not, not the reverse. And we can see this in Earth history that for most of Earth history, or at least a majority of Earth history that we can look at through sedimentary rocks, the Earth was essentially a bacterial and archaeal planet. Eukaryotic cells with a membrane-bounded nucleus are only found in the second half of Earth history, and large, complicated organisms like plants and animals are only found in the last 15% or so of Earth history. I see. So the earliest organisms were single-celled. In fact, as you just said, most of the history of life on this planet was unicellular. So then how and when did multicellularity evolve? Well. We can divide multicellular organisms into two groups. On the one hand, there is what I would call simple multicellularity, that is just filaments, sheets, or balls of cells, very little differentiation among cells within those, those balls or sheets. And that kind of multicellularity has evolved among eukaryotic organisms several dozen times. And we even see evidence in the fossil record that soon after we first see evidence for single-celled eukaryotic organisms, we see evidence of these simple balls and sheets. Now, complex multicellular life, which I would, I would include in that animals, plants, certain types of fungi, maybe red algae, complex red algae, and kelps, those have only evolved a few times, and they have requirements that go well beyond those for simple multicellularity. First off, you need molecules that make cells adhere to one another and maintain a certain geometry of shape. 
you also need methods of communication between cells so that rather than just having you know, thousands of cells each doing their own thing, you have this coordinated structure that can do things that the single cells don't. And then, because complex multicellular organisms have many different kinds of cells, they have tissues and, and organs, you need a genetic program for development so that we can get these complex structures. So up to this point, we've just been focusing on Earth and Mars. What about life beyond our solar system? How might we detect it there? Well, that's a good question and one that uh, NASA and its global partners have thought about a lot. Um, the big issue is distance. You know, within our solar system, we can actually go to Mars and, you know, really through landers and all sorts of interesting missions ask very sophisticated questions about the planet, its structure, and its history. And we can, in fact, go with a little more difficulty to other places in our own solar system that at least possibly could harbor life. Most of these are some of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. It gets harder when you think about life on planets outside of our own solar system. You know, the first extrasolar planets were only found about 30 years ago, but now through missions like Kepler and that, we know of thousands of planets revolving around stars uh, in other solar systems. In fact, it looks like most stars have one or more planets running around them. We are learning, at least for planets that are relatively close to our own solar system, that is within maybe a, a few light years, we are learning how to examine the composition of their atmospheres. And perhaps that can tell us something about life, just the way oxygen on our planet tells us something about biology. Now, it has to be said that it remains a topic for debate as to whether there are diagnostically biological atmospheres, but at least that, that kind of measurement will give us an increasing ability to think about habitability and perhaps even inhabitation by organisms elsewhere. Once you get beyond a few light years, that is for most of the universe, however, that's farther away from us than any kind of direct observation will will support. And so for most of the universe, we'll only know if life is there, if they call us and tell us. <laughs> uh, well, that's certainly a tantalizing possibility. Now, we've come a long way over the 3.5 billion years of evolution back here on Earth. And we're now, as you said, shaping the planet on a truly global scale. And there's even a lot of talk I've heard about sending an astronaut to Mars. Um, I've even heard that the Mars One Foundation would like to establish a permanent human, human settlement there. Uh, what do you think of these plans? And as maybe my final question, which I don't know if you'll like, is would you sign up for the trip? Well, questions of sending humans to Mars and, and colonizing Mars are highly contentious. And they're contentious because there are questions of whether that's necessary and questions about expense. It is clear 
that we've come a long way in the robotic exploration of Mars. And if we project over the next few decades of how that will continue to develop, it's not clear to me at least that we want to or need to send humans to Mars for scientific purposes. I think it's more likely that the justification would be what our 19th century ancestors called manifest destiny. I think it's also the case that the cost, particularly of colonization of Mars, is, is so expensive that we probably need national, indeed international, conversations about whether a trillion dollars is better spent terraforming Mars or forming colonies on Mars, as opposed to using that same amount of money to improve the human condition here on Earth. So there are many people who, who think this is something that's important to our future. There are others who are not convinced of that, and, and the debate will, will play out. I will say that were there to be an opportunity to take a flight to Mars, I would probably remain in my rocking chair here, here on Earth and let, let someone else do it. Um, there's no question that if and when we send a person to Mars, uh, there will be a tremendous amount of uncertainty as to the probability that that person will, will return again. So in general, I, I, I'm a great fan of, of space exploration. We're learning a lot that enables us to look again at our own planet and you know, ask questions about biology. In, in new ways and broader ways. And so I hope that at least in one shape or another, exploration of our solar system and beyond will continue for many years to come. Thank you for listening to the How Life Works podcast. I hope this talk helped better your understanding of the material you're covering in the course. Good luck and don't ever stop being curious about how life works.